Uh, my wife uh, just whispered at me as I came up, what's the name of those artists again, their song? And uh, Stephanie, thanks for making me seem way cooler than I am. Uh, but I do love music. I love good music. I love music that sings scripture. And so there is this duo of brothers called Shane and Shane who has an album called The Psalms, as well as for those of you who remember what hymns are. Uh, hymns 1 and 2, volumes 1 and 2, absolutely worth a Spotify subscription. So I'm not, I'm not sponsored by them, but just so you know. I want to invite you to prepare your heart as, have, as you have been led already to receive from God's Word that which He, by His Spirit, desires you and I to hear. And so this morning, I'm going to read from the Scripture, and uh, before I do, I'm going to offer a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word that is timeless and true, Your Word that has sustained Your people throughout history. Your word that has been an encouragement in times of despair, a source of hope in times of anxiety, a comfort in times of mourning, and has throughout history made manifest clear that the God who has given us this word gives himself to us by his Spirit. These are important days in the life of our community. We ask that you would continue to protect us from that which brings division so that we may be united across the diverse cultures represented here in our faith, trust, and love of you. Would you enable us to hear your Spirit's word to us today? Some of us have come from Challenging weeks, others rejoicing, skipping into church, if you will. But no matter the experience of our life, we come before you knowing that according to Scripture, you have promised to be with us in every season, in every challenge, in every celebration, and in every joy. Therefore, we do the work of being the church, knowing that you are here. May we now hear with open hearts and open minds that which you would have us hear, believe, and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 23, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Who needs that today? He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For those of you accustomed to the King James Version, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The language would imply the darkest of dark, that which cannot be penetrated, 
that which seems heavy, overwhelming, and perhaps most despairing. But the psalmist says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. Sorry that I'm punctuating my reading, but it's helpful so that I don't have to say it again. That if you pay attention to this well-known psalm, you will notice that the The shepherd moves from being a shepherd to a king or a banquet host, and it is not uncommon to look at Israel's leaders as being shepherds, irrespective of whether they were actual shepherds or kings. And so the transition in the psalm is not that abrupt, actually, because the shepherd king is the ideal leader, according to biblical history. And so the shepherd who comforts And protects, prepares a deep table before me in the presence of my enemies. (laughs) You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And then I want you to hear this. Surely goodness. Surely goodness. And mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. The word of the Lord. What is this fascinating book of poetry, of songs, of prayers, of poems, known as the book of Psalms? Well, the Psalms are a compilation of 150 poems, songs, and prayers. Some attributed to Israel's most beloved king, King David. In fact, we, we count 73 of the Psalms as being attributed to him. And then there's Psalms attributed to a, a worship leader and a musician named Asaph. Is he here today? Some attributed to the sons of Korah. Some attributed to King Solomon, considered to be one of Israel's wise kings, perhaps wise because he discerned he needed the wisdom of God. Some attributed to Moses, and over a third remains anonymous. This collection of poems, songs, and prayers was likely written over a thousand-year period and was compiled in all likelihood sometime after Israel's Babylonian exile. Now, before you get too worried, it does sound like a Bible class this morning, but I'm starting a new series, and if I do this work now, I can just kind of preach when we go. Is that okay? So stay with me. My wife is quite giddy when I do historical overview of the Old Testament, so this is good for my marriage. The Psalms became very significant to Israel following their exile and continue to be formative to the worship of the Jewish people to this day. Jesus himself prayed the Psalms. Second, perhaps only to Isaiah, the Psalms is most frequently used by New Testament scholars and writers. 
And in Jesus' life himself, in his greatest hour of need, hanging from a Roman cross, he cried out, echoing the words of King David in Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the life of Jesus, we see a practice of prayer taken from the Psalms that gives Jesus the language, perhaps even the freedom to pray with a honesty in his greatest time of testing and trial. And perhaps as we begin this journey of the Psalms together, my quiet hope for us, for you, for me, is that somehow the Psalms would open up new vistas of prayer for us, for those of us who have thought that we cannot come to God as honestly as the psalmist does. So how do we approach the Psalms before I preach on it? A halfway to understand the Psalms is to look at its composition, its overall structure. Now, I'm not going to get all technical with you, but just stay with me for a while because this will help. For example, the Psalms are divided into five books, and they mimic intentionally the five books of the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They are structured that way because the psalmist's intention the way it has been compiled is to point the people of God back to the law of God, saying this, that if you remember the law of God, the Torah, which usually means those first five books of Moses, if you remember the Torah and keep it, God's faithfulness will continue to remain with you as you wait for the promised Messiah. And so the Psalms significant to Israel's corporate life of worship and prayer. In fact, each book concludes with a similar uh, phrase, may the God of Israel be blessed forever and ever. Amen. The last five psalms all culminate with hallelujahs, acknowledging the faithfulness of Israel's God to fulfill what he said he would do. Simply put, in a brief synopsis, the Psalms serve as a guide to help Israel live faithfully according to God's word as they awaited the fulfillment of his promise. Two primary categories. There are many things written on the Psalms, and you can find as many as six different genres within the Psalms. But I just want to give you two general categories that would be helpful to you as we progress through this series. The first is that the Psalms have a, a category which is called lament. These are Psalms that convey pain, confusion, anger with the state of things. Lament draws attention to what's wrong in the world and asks, in fact, demands that God do something about it. Most of the Psalms of Lament are to be found earlier in the compilation of Psalms in books 1 through 3. 
Not all the poems, songs, or prayers in book one through three are lament, and there are some that are praise psalms that are interspersed, but the bulk of the lament happens at the beginning of the psalms. But the second category of psalms is psalms of praise. Poems, songs, and prayers primarily located in books four and five that are prayers and songs and poems of joy and celebration that draw attention to what's good in the world by retelling what God has done and thanking Him for His faithfulness. Notably and importantly, the praise psalms follow and outnumber the psalms of lament, positing or putting a trajectory before us of the Psalms that does not end in despair, but with the praise of God. So three points about the Psalms before I actually start preaching, and all God's people says, Amen. I only have one point today, so it's okay. What do the Psalms then offer us as a faith community today, as people of faith today? What does it offer us as we navigate the real day-to-day life we are called to live? First, that faith is honest. Psalms may make room for what's wrong in our world and in us. It makes room for the evil that persists and gives us the language and example of how to bring our true concerns, our honest fears, our anger, and even our despair in the lives we live today before God. It has been said that while all people cry at the state of the world, Christians lament. Lament is taking our pain and anguish honestly to the one who can do something about it, in hope that he will, even when he has not as yet. And I want to say to you why the Psalms are important is because if we don't have a healthy place to take our pain, we end up either self-harming ourselves or harming others. But the Christian witness through the book of Psalms is that God has provided for us an honest way, a courageous way, a truthful way, to deal with the real lives that we live that is often filled with brokenness and pain and hurt. There's this false perspective of Christianity that says we have to pretend all things are right, and when they are not, something is wrong with us. But the Psalms would tell us that the world in which we live creates pain, creates questions, creates fear and even anxiety, but that God has provided from the beginning and access to Him that can be honest and true and trusting. Would you pray for something in my life? The end of a dry mouth. And yes, I drink enough water. My frequent visits to the washroom during the course of the night bears witness to it. Second, what can we learn about the Psalms before I preach on the Psalms? You still okay with me? Can you say amen if you're still with me? (laughs) This side here. You're the sanctified. (laughs) It's those new members that's sitting right there. there. A faith that discerns the goodness of God in the world in which we live. 
So not only an honest faith, but a faith that discerns the goodness of God in the world we live. Yes, the world is bad and can be bad and hurtful, and there can be hard and difficult things that happens, but the psalmist throughout the Psalms discerns the beauty and presence of God in creation, in people, and in the world in which they live. One of my dad's favorite Psalms was Psalm 8. A psalm that declares the beauty of God's creation through which the psalmist apprehends the presence of God. The psalms remind us that we live in a world that God has created and that we have eyes to see the beauty of that which is around us, both in its created order and in people. We may apprehend, in fact, that God is present has not given up on this creation, and according to Revelation, is committed to make all things new again. Therefore, Christians who lament, who are honest, who cry out, who bring their true selves to God in their moments of despair, are also those who can discern amidst all that is wrong in the world that there is a good God, a God who has not abandoned his creation or his people, and that if we have eyes to see the beauty of God, we can have joy even in the midst of heartache. Three, the Psalms gives us a faith that looks forward in hope, anticipating that what God has promised he would do for Israel through bringing a Messiah would not only be the fulfillment of Israel's hopes, but would be the fulfillment of all that we as humanity long for. An honest faith, a faith that discerns the goodness of God in the world in which we live, and a faith that looks forward in hope. Psalm 23, I shall be brief. Psalm 23 is an individual psalm of praise or thanksgiving in book one that follows immediately after one of the most well-known psalms of lament, where David cries out in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. It is amazing that in the structure of the Psalms, we go from a Psalm like that to a Psalm like this. One in which the psalmist acknowledges that God is his shepherd who leads, provides, and guides, and protects. It is the kind of composition that reminds us through the life and experience of David that this is the complexity with which we live our own lives. That there are seasons in which we may feel the acute absence of the divine in our everyday ordinary experiences. That we may even cry out, God, where are you when I need you? But the Full witness of the Psalms will tell us this, that our cries of anguish and lament is not wasted on a faithful God who in Jesus Christ fulfills all things by becoming present with us in our circumstance. And so Psalm 23 punctuates a season of lament with hope. Are you needing some hope today? You know, as a, as a young preacher, 
I got away with that. <laughs> it is easy to project my journey on you, to presume that when I feel optimistic and hopeful, you are, or return, I feel down, so everybody else must be down. It can easily, easily influence how I preach. I could preach to medicate my own pain. <laughs> but I've grown and I've matured. And I was talking about this last week. Uh, in Toronto, I had a privilege of preaching at the church that I used to be a part of many years ago. And one of the things that I said at that church was, the pastor I was, you know, I couldn't say I had more hair then. I was bald for a long, I've been bald for a long time. But, but maybe a little lighter. <laughs> Uh, perhaps a little bit ignorant of what I didn't know, perhaps a little bit of bravado in me. In fact, every Saturday at the prayer time we'd have, there'd be my, one of my many Jamaican moms who raised me in that church as a pastor. By the way, we need, we need spiritual mentors as pastors. But Mrs. Eccles, she would always sit in the corner there and in prayer time, and, and, and when it came to her turn to pray, she would always pray, Lord Jesus... Keep Pastor Stuart humble. She prayed it so often that after a while I said to myself, I must have a problem with pride. There must be something that I don't see because Miss Eccles prayed with such passion and such certainty that I was convinced I had a problem of hubris. The truth is, is that Miss Eccles gave me a great gift. She prayed so that my heart posture would never lead me to self-reliance, even though it has at times, because she knew that the work of God in my life would require a humility that is fostered not in the times in which everything is fine, but in the times when I know I need God. Why did I start that story? I guess because it's funny. But perhaps for some of us, it is an invitation to recognize that where we are is not necessarily where we need to stay. Psalm 23 answers the desperate lament of David through the faithfulness of the shepherd. It is a psalm that is most often heard at funerals because the provocative declaration that David makes that the shepherd is with him, as the King James Version reads, in the valley of the shadow of death seems an appropriate encouragement from the Word of God for times of loss. It is a psalm that exudes the provision of the great shepherd who leads, provides, and protects the sheep. It is a psalm that seamlessly moves from the sheep grazing in the pasture to God's faithful and bountiful provision of a feast at his banquet table and in the presence of the psalmist's enemies. All these themes are beautiful, powerful, humbling, especially if one considers that the sheep are here not rewarded for their effort, their obedience, or their faithfulness. The sheep does nothing to earn the gift of the presence of the shepherd. Everything is his provision. Everything is his gift. The benevolence, the protection, the hospitality of the shepherd king is so clearly on display that the sheep can do nothing but give thanks for such a shepherd. 
I should have maybe preached on that theme. But here this morning is a, a truth that has escaped me until I pondered quietly and through the help of a trusted friend. The implications of verse 6. Before I quickly share that with you, I want to say that my hope throughout this series is that we might be able to encounter a fresh breath of the Spirit, a fresh outpouring of the Spirit in our hearts, in our minds, that we might perhaps move from despair to hope, that those of us who are struggling with guilt and shame may find that we will not receive rejection, but in fact, grace. And that those who have wandered, no matter how far they've gone, will be brought home by the great shepherd. So hear this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. A Hebrew word can be translated into English in a variety of ways. And so, if you will, I want to share with you how this particular text might take on a new meaning for us today. Surely goodness. Goodness has many nuances in the Old Testament, and as a biblical scholar, Will Williamson explains, it speaks of all the benefits of being near to God. All those things that God's presence afford us. The multiple ways in which God is good and is good to us. That is made clear to us by Him being present in our lives. The word mercy, translated from the Hebrew word hesed, usually refers to God's faithfulness even when we are not faithful. Oh, mercy. Oh, mercy. The word has said mercy was a word often quoted by the prophets, but it also carries this significant meaning. It means the steadfast love of God. But as Will Willimon pointed out, and help me with this text. He says that those two words, the goodness and the mercy of God, is less surprising than what the actual Hebrew word redaf, which is the word that is translated to follow means. He says that when goodness and mercy follows us, the English translation of the Hebrew word radaf into follow is far too weak to carry the power of the meaning of the word. It should better be rendered as pursuit, to chase down, to run after. In fact, that same word is used of Pharaoh when he pursues the people of God all the way to the Red Sea. A better translation of this very well-known text then may go something like this. 
God's manifest goodness through his presence and his mercy and steadfast love chases after the psalmist wherever he may be. It is the God that the psalmist came to realize has not given up of him, but have pursued him throughout his life. In fact, Eugene Peterson translates it beautifully. He says, your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. The psalmist knows that the great shepherd is pursuing him with a determination that surpasses even Pharaoh's pursuit. The pursuit of the shepherd who leaves the 99 in Jesus' ministry and teaching chases after the one. Israel failed to live up to their commitments, but God kept chasing them. Even when we fail, up to live to, uh, fail to live up to our commitments, the God that the psalmist speaks about in Psalm 23 chases after us. Your mercy and your goodness chases after us in every way God is making it clear through David's witness today that it does not matter where you are running, the pursuit of goodness and mercy is behind you because the character of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is of such a nature that he does not give up easily. Even when sheep wander, the shepherd abandons the 99 that are, are safe in order to pursue the one that is missing. Oh, I thought you would be blessed. I thought there'd be an old Pentecostal line dance going right here, <laughs> headed by Brenda and Don Quance. <laughs> I thought some of you would say, I needed to hear that today. Pastor, keep going. What would it do to your prayer life to know that God is as relentless in pursuing you and me as he was for the psalmist. There's a beautiful story. When I met Ruthann, well, that's a beautiful story too, but when I met Ruthann, by the way, she, she pursued me. Well, I mean, chased. I mean, chase is not even a strong enough word. It was a beautiful thing. Uh, <laughs> when I met Ruthann, uh, one of the, 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 the things I, I loved about her from the outset was that she was a reader. She loved reading. If you came to our house and you went into our basement, we have a library. And I, I'm not exaggerating that. She's given away a lot of books, but we could probably run our own little business out of our basement. The amount of books she reads, it, it's translated into our kids loving reading also, which is a wonderful gift to pass down. One of the artists, uh, one of the, 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 the writers that she introduced me to, uh, was a, a, a writer I would never have read. She re, re, writes fiction based upon biblical story. Her name is Francine Rivers. I'm dating us a little bit. She wrote a book called Redeeming Love. And in that book, she recounts the story of Hosea and Goma in a contemporary setting. And if you know the story of Hosea and Goma in the Bible, Hosea was a prophet of God that God instructs to marry a woman of ill reputation. We have little children here, so can I say that? Uh, he is a man of God amongst a, a people that are wayward, and God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to assassinate your, your reputation. I want you to go and take a woman that 
no one respects. And perhaps she has lost respect for herself. And I want you to make her your wife. The Word of God says to us that, that Hosea was faithful to God's command and took this woman named Gomer to be his wife. Everything seems to go well. They have three children. Very unfortunately named if you read the story. Because their names would reflect what would happen next. They had a wonderful family going. Everything was good. Everybody was happy for a little while until the urge to return. The urge to go back to a life that even though it was damaging, even though it was hard, seemed to be stronger than the desire to stay with the prophet of God. See, the story of Hosea and Gomer is this wonderful illustration that God gives. Perhaps wonderful is not the most appropriate word. It's this powerful illustration that God gives to the people of God because like Gomer, he has become their husband. He's taken the people to be his bride. He has committed himself faithfully to them, to be in a covenant relationship with them. And so as Gomer is uh, in this place of covenant and commitment, she decides that the pull to go back was stronger than the desire to stay. So she leaves, and she, re re she resumes her life of illicit affairs. At this point in the story, every one of us here would say, that's all right, Hosea, tap out. You've done enough. You've put yourself out there. You've gone all the way. You did your best. You tried. But no, God comes at Hosea, says, uh, I want you to go back and find her. The scripture doesn't make this explicit, but it does imply that he must go to the lowest and the darkest place where Gomer now finds herself. The prophet, though reluctant, I'm sure, decides to obey God's calling. He goes and finds Gomer brings her back out of her darkness to restore her so that through his life, God may speak to Israel and to us about his relentless pursuit of his people even when they fail. When I first read the story of Hosea and Gomer, I thought to myself, hmm, God must be asking me to be like Hosea. God's, the, the story of the Bible must be about me finding the redemptive capacity within my own heart to forgive others. It must be about the posture that I often put myself in when I read the scripture, that I get it and no one else does. No amens. It must be that God is just affirming how good I am already, that I am righteous and as a righteous man, I can do what God wants me to do. But oh, the story of Hosea and Gomer is a story about us, but not from the vantage point of Hosea, but from the vantage point of Gomer. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he pursued us.
He chased after me a long time. He chased after me a long time. I'm so grateful that God does not quit like I would, does not give up as quickly as I would. I thank God that he shows us through the prophets and through the psalmist that he is relentless in his pursuit of his sheep, that his goodness and his mercy are always chasing us down. Can we let him catch up with us today? We can come home no matter how far we've wandered because God's not stopped running after us. We can walk through the dark valleys honestly, acknowledging our fear and our pain, our anger and our disappointment, our grief and our loss, and know that He does not turn His face away from us. We can be satisfied even in life when we feel threatened by those or circumstances around us because He is the one who prepares a meal for us in the presence of our threats. And this morning is chasing us to where each and every one of us find ourselves. The psalmist understood that surely the great shepherd will be relentless in coming all the way to where the psalmist found himself. And today he's coming all the way to where we live. What makes the love of Christ divine is that it is faithful. It remains true. It is willing to suffer so that we may be saved. Father God, this morning, as we begin a series in a part of the Scripture that perhaps for some of us feels as foreign as the language, the images, armies and wars and enemies, idol worship, exile, loneliness, fear, anguish, all within a, a collection of songs that became the, the language of prayer for the people of God, I, I pray that we would be drawn in to not just learning about your Bible and your Word and growing in our understanding as those who are smarter because of it, but those who experience your great love and your saving grace. Some today may not be convinced that it is true that you are still interested in them. 
Some today may believe that in their darkest valley, it must mean that you are not there. But oh dear God, you are the great shepherd who has remained faithful. Your word says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so in this moment, we thank you for the certainty that we can have even when the bottom of our lives feel like it's falling apart. Thank you that for some of us who are concerned about those who are no longer following you, some of us who are burdened about our children, our families, our friends, some of us who, who may be worried that they can outrun your grace. Your word says, surely, surely goodness and mercy is chasing after them. For that person who sits amongst us today, who feels that they are in a good place, may they discern you are the reason, you are their hope, you are faithful. Father, have your will and way in this church amongst your people. We pray in Jesus' name.